Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host, and I'm hosting the show today along with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon. Now, if you've listened to last week's podcast, I forgot to introduce everybody. So if you're listening to the first season, it's all still the same people with one exception. We've got a guest. His name's Caden, and he's going to be providing some extremely valuable input on one of the things that we're discussing today. Now, if you listened to last week, you know that we touched on the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we're calling this entire portion of the show Cults and Solutions, because it's not just good enough to teach you what they teach. It's actually better to know what they're about as well as how to reach them evangelistically. So we're going to start off the show with our normal segments. They're going to be a little bit abbreviated because we have so much extra content. And then we're going to be discussing the question of Mormonism. And as we set it up last week, I'm going to be given just a couple of little known facts. Brian's going to be given the history. And then we're going to jump in to the broader scope of what they believe. And we're going to have some input from Caden. He is a former Mormon. Mm -hmm. And... I'll let him tell you his story when it comes to that point, but you don't want to tune out because there's going to be a lot of great content here. Yeah. And, and, and Luke, I, I always think it's, you know, when people who didn't grow up either in one, in one of the cults, it's, it's easy for us to get some information and, and so on and so forth. But when you hear the voice, in this case from Caden, it really, it gives greater depth and insight to it. And, and Caden is one of the staff pastors here at Calvary. He grew up Mormon till 18 years of age, and I'll let him tell his story more later on. But Caden, welcome. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So we're going to start out. Brian, what did you come across that you wanted to share about your class this week? Well, we jumped into the Reformation, obviously, and Knee Deep uh, started uh, with Martin Luther, and we got up to the 95 thesis, whereby we studied the first few points and where, you know, Luther comes out swinging pretty hard, you know, uh, attacks mm. some of the sacraments of penance and then gets into purgatory and all of these other things. So our students were very thankful that we're looking at original sources. And then, of course, we turned to the second half going through the imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis. So but it was a great class and we'll continue next week into Luther and, and such. How oh, about yours? That's excellent. So we had a great class Doing personal evangelism, of course, doesn't get more exciting. Than, hmm. But um, we were able to jump into a couple of really great truths about the, w the way you become a great soul winner isn't just by deciding that that's what you're going to be. It takes the preparation of your life. So yeah. we talked a lot about the life preparation, getting sin out of your life. What's practical holiness look like? How does that hinder the work of the Spirit when you're trying to share the gospel? Some really practical truths about it's not just going out there and talking to people. It's not about giving people food and clothing. That's just that's another part of it. Witnessing, sharing the gospel, and to share the gospel effectively, you need to be completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And so we had a great class, got a lot of foundational truths in, we're looking forward to this coming week. Yeah, and that's really appropriate, obviously, for the topics we've been discussing. Last week, Jehovah Witness, this week, Mormonism. You know, being led by the Holy Spirit is so important when mm -hmm. reaching out to individuals. Luke, what kind of information, tidbits, little facts that did you find about Mormonism before I jump into the history. Yeah, the, there's a lot of them, as we've discussed on other shows, of every major cult. There are things that you might be shocked by. I haven't necessarily selected these for their shock value. These are some of the most prominent aspects mm. that popped out when you start digging through some of the general beliefs. Number one, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, and I'll return to this later on, they taught that God was actually Adam. Now, this 
was only taught during the tenure largely of Brigham Young. It seems like he really sort of diverted from even some of the LDS original doctrines mm-hmm. and multiple doctrines that he taught were repudiated by the church later on. Mm-hmm. So he has some real gems in there when it comes to things that you might not know. The church has tried to repackage this, and some of them have denounced it as outright heresy. There's another one, again, taught by Brigham Young, called the Blood Atonement. And it was basically that a sinner ought to atone for certain sins with his own blood so that he doesn't spend eternity in hell. Hmm. And as a result of that, sometimes that would justify violence from the church toward particular people in the community, and they would say that was for this spiritual reason. Some people say, oh, that's just a myth, but not so. I dug into it a little further, and that type of thing was actually requested of any person in Utah State juror selection they would ask them if they held to the doctrine of blood atonement because it could prejudice them about the outcome of particular types of cases. Hmm. And that was on the form up until 1994. So this is not just a myth. This is something the state was convinced enough about that they put it on there. Hmm. Number three, Temple Mormons. These are people who have, they've reached a particular status. They're getting ready to either go on a mission, et cetera, and they go through a, a ceremony that's called the endowment which allows them to have a particular type of spiritual participation mm-hmm. and rank within the church. But once they've gone through that ceremony, they're required to wear priestly garments. Now, a lot of people make fun of this in the <laughs> sense, you know, they call it magic underwear and all this stuff. And that's not, we're not trying to be intentionally offensive to the Mormons. But nonetheless, it is something that you don't wear on the outside of your clothing. You wear it underneath. Yeah. There's particular exceptions for it. But uh, they're supposed to wear this for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. which is a, a significant commitment. But it's something odd, you know, if you had questions about that. Yeah, let me just let me just interject here. Caden, I remember in some of our conversations, you were verifying exactly what Luke said. Maybe for our listeners, yeah. just, just, just give us a, a quick snippet of what exactly is this endowment. Yeah, well, so for me personally, as I grew up, you, you obviously hear about people going through their endowment ceremonies. And if you're like me and, and you were born into it, that's really something that is a, just a word, a part of your everyday vernacular. Uh, and it's not it's it's just like getting baptized as a as a Christian. We really think about baptism in that same kind of setting. And so endowment never seemed strange to me. The idea of it never seemed strange to me. It seemed and, and was described to me as another step on my journey of faith. It's really just another opportunity for me to engage with what God wanted me to do. And when you read in the context of the Old Testament without the understanding of what the Old Testament is about, it seems to fit. Uh, and you can see, and, and that plays out in the story of Joseph Smith, a lot of misinterpreted Old Testament doctrine, Levitical doctrine is twisted and, and can be confused. I also wanted to add uh, Luke um, what you were saying at the beginning, um, that that heresy that that some Mormons now denounce about Brigham Young came from a statement that Joseph Smith wrote. I believe mm. it was a statement that he wrote uh, in a collection of works called the the Words and Works of Joseph Smith, and it was still up until maybe recently published church doctrine that was outside of their canonical biblical teachings, and in it he said that. As surely as Adam did, God once lived and walked as a man. And I'm not sure if that's the exact quote, uh, but that's it's pretty close. Um, and so that's where that kind of particular heresy came from was Joseph Smith wrote it originally. And if you take that on what it sounds like, it sounds like some people are teaching the doctrine that Joseph Smith or that God was Adam. And that's what Joseph Smith didn't intend and what Brigham Young took it to mean. And so that's why some Mormons of the day 
denounce it as heresy. But that's what happens when you don't have a standard of evaluation for your theology when there's nothing to compare it to. Hmm. Man, that's a great observation. And that's exactly right. As I read through the discussions of the church, how they've tried to repackage this doctrine, and they've continued to repackage this in the mainstream. Some of the fundamentalists and the splits that still practice what they call plural marriage, which is my last point here, they still practice some of these older doctrines, Mm -hmm. sort of like the Catholics that are pre-Vatican II. Mm -hmm. They still hold to these older canon doctrines. That's very interesting. I love the contribution there. Mormon doctrine states or implies that Jesus is the spiritual brother of Lucifer. A lot of people don't realize this. They think, oh, Mormons worship Jesus like we do. Well, not quite. There's there's mm-hmm. some addendums to that that are very interesting. And then lastly, and I've added this because it's something a lot of people have questions about, but there's a lot of information out there that takes it in different directions. We'll just say uh, Brigham Young married 56 women. Joseph Smith, I put in there, he's a slacker. He only had 40 wives. You know. Yeah. But something else you may not have known, and after I tell you, you may have wished that you didn't really know it, is that these marriages were to women of all ages and marital statuses. So Mm -hmm. he was marrying, in the classic sense, we'll explain this in a second, married women. Mm. Now, they called it sealing because he would, and I don't mean to be offensive, but he was sort of a pickup artist, right, with a particular slant toward telling you, if you allow me to be your eternal marital partner, it's going to bring a blessing upon your father's house and on you for eternity. And this Mm -hmm. is how he would coerce young women who didn't know any better, who may have had a desire to actually be godly young women who had all of these ideas about what had been put in their ear by the prophet. And now he's coming to them saying, God commanded me to take you as my wife. Mm -hmm. And so these sealings would happen where there was particular type of ceremony that would spiritually bind them to Joseph Smith. But some of those were also, I think many of them were, according to historians, physically consummated as well, despite Mm -hmm. the fact there were married women involved and women, uh, young women that were down to 14 years of age. Mm -hmm. So this was one of the biggest reasons why the Mormons were kicked out of almost every community they went to before they went to Salt Lake, because this was such an egregious coercive process. Mm -hmm. And I would say too, and I'd add that, that idea of sealing is still a part of the temple process for Mormons today. Uh, if, you, if you're going to be married, like a lot of my Mormon friends are, they go to the temple and they are, are married re- religiously into the Mormon faith. They're sealed together. And then afterwards, there's a civil marriage that's performed. And that sealing is entirely private. Uh, it's only for you know a, a very few. You have to pick people that are going to be in there with you. It's typically the bride's parents, the groom's parents, and then a few other select people, maybe your local church leader. Uh, and that's performed in the temple to this day, that same exact process. And it's interesting that reasoning behind sealing, the, the idea of getting an eternal blessing is still, that same reasoning is still in practice, just mm. not applied to polygamy. Right. Uh, and, and a lot of Mormons view polygamy in the church uh, and, and even back to Joseph Smith as a temporary or, or momentary heresy. Uh, and even some, I've even heard some justify it within the context of, uh, you know, some of these wives were widows, they were struggling and they needed to be taken care of, mm-hmm. which is the exact explanation that Joseph mm-hmm. Smith was giving to people that as to why he was taking multiple to wife. So it, it just interesting to know, still, still the reasoning, the logic that's used that Joseph Smith used at the time still in practice and in work today. Fascinating. Exactly. Fascinating. Just as the final cap on that, because we've got so much more to cover here that I'm really excited about. And I love how 
Caden's just chiming right in. It's adding so much. It's becoming better with the uh, with the facts that I've just tried to present. He's lived it. So, but in that last consideration with all of the sealing that was going on, it wasn't until one of the Mormon leaders was actually brought before Congress that he had to publicly disavow plural marriage or polygamy, as we would call it, plural marriage within the original mainstream. There'd been little flashes of protest about this every time it would come to a point in the community where it was a problem. They said, no, we don't believe that. But then they would continue to practice it in various portions. Now, only the fundamentalist sects, there's two of them at least that I came across. I don't recall every part of their acronym, but the fundamentalist LDS church, as they call themselves, they still practice this. And it's estimated that 20 to 30 percent of them practice this. There Mm -hmm. was a very prominent case within the last, what, 20 years where this was happening, and the the man went to prison, uh, who was the leader of that particular community. Yeah. A lot of broken families, a lot of broken broken people coming out of that. Very tragic, but they're still holding to these doctrines, even if they're illegal. And it's I'll just say this, and then I'll I'll wrap up. In general, in the Bible, one of the biggest links to sexual sin and immorality is false teaching. Mm-hmm. When you have a, an abundance of false doctrine. Because of the motives of the people that are teaching it, they're almost always using their positions for power. And it's not long before that translates into the abuse of their congregants in mm-hmm. a various number of ways. And unfortunately, this cult is not an exception to that mm-hmm. rule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's my turn. My turn to um, give a little bit of history lesson on Mormonism. And if we thought Charles Russell, the founder of Jehovah Witnesses, was a, an odd and misled man, Joseph Smith is that and more. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys have already touched on some of the weird inconsistencies in his life. And because he's such a a fascinating character, this history lesson is going to go a little longer than normal, but I I encourage everyone to to bear with me. And then, of course, Caden, if he wants to hop in and clarify something um, or underscore something, he's more than welcome. And Brian, just one thing before you get started on this. For those of you who are listening to us, we typically try to limit our time to 30 minutes. But in these cult sessions, especially when we have a guest, bear with us. We may go a little bit longer. It's all going to be excellent content. So don't tune out when you see the length of time that the episode may be, you know, 35, 45 minutes. It's because of how much we have that we're trying to present. So have at it, sir. So here we go. Joseph Smith was born December 23rd, 1805 in Sharon, Vermont. He was born to a farming family. Um, He was one of 10 or 11 children. Scholars go back and forth on that. Um, His his parents didn't seem to have a distinct denominational affiliation in his early childhood, though he was largely, the family was largely caught up in the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening. And that's very important for our listeners to to Mm. put, because part of the Second Great Awakening was visions was signs and wonders mm-hmm. and being led fresh and anew by the Holy Spirit, even if it contradicted Scripture. Right. We still see that in some groups today. Sure. Yeah. But he was brought up within that milieu, that kind of context. And as a child, he he contracted an infection. Some people say it was a bone infection. Others say it was typhoid fever. We don't know. What we do know is he was a sickly child. Mm-hmm. And then the family had to move to New York. So in 1816, they moved near Rochester, New York. And there we do have some evidence that he was, they, the family was associated with the Presbyterian church. Though, according to Joseph Smith, he, he wasn't really 
he himself wasn't that in tune with Presbyterians, right. though he says he was interested in Christianity by the age of 12. Mm -hmm. Now it gets interesting because by age 14, going on 15, this is roughly around 1820, he began to have visions. And he claims that these visions were of the Father and of the Son, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, he claims that he was visited by an angel whom he called, you guys know, who did he call? Moroni. That's exactly right, Moroni. And Moroni began to start dictate information to him, which was later published in the Book of Mormon. And where this happened, according to Joseph Smith, was on a hill near his home. Joseph Smith claims to have had four visions in total. The first one, scholars put roughly around 1820, and this was the vision that provided the basis for the Mormon church. Mm -hmm. Second vision, he, Joseph Smith clearly says it was September 21st, 1823, and part of that was later published in the, the Book of Mormon, The Pearl of Great Price. Interestingly enough, the angel was giving this information and supposedly inscribing it on golden plates, golden tablets. And there's a lot of debate if were the tablets shaped like a moon or, how, you know, were they like the Ten Commandments <laughs> and all this. That's another section. Here's the here's the bottom line. The, the tablets aren't in existence. As a matter of fact, according to Joseph Smith, he was supposed to give them back to Moroni because, you know, the, he didn't want people to question it. But there were 11 witnesses who saw the, the tablets to gave verification that they really exist. The golden plates don't exist today. But here's the point. He had two visions, 1820, 1823. Back to the family. And, and please put this in context. He's yeah. a teenager. Yeah. He's he's not like a grown man. He's no. he's a teenager that grew up in all this weird religious environment. Mm -hmm. Due to hardship, the family moves out of the farm and they take on odd jobs, treasure hunting, um, working around other people's houses. And interestingly, some family members got into folk magic, which would be they would read palms they would do certain things to make extra money. And what we do have evidence of is in, in 1826, Smith, Joseph Smith, was brought before a court, a county court for glass looking, which is kind of like fortune telling of soothsaying, you know, that you're, yeah. I, I could tell you, you know, where, where this treasure is hidden. And, and he was reprimanded for this. Hmm. And this, that was his first encounter with, with uh, the law. <laughs> well, he leaves New York because things are not going well for him personally, and he moves to Pennsylvania. Now, this is just Joseph Smith. He separates from his family, and it's in Pennsylvania he meets his wife, future and he's wife. he's about how old at this time? Uh, 18, this is 1823, 1824, so he would be, eight, what, 18, you know, young, young man. He meets Emma Hale, his, his future wife. And let's just say Emma's parents did not like Joseph Smith. It's on record. They have journal records where they were just not like, how's what's this guy? Not, what's not to like? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to take care of my daughter? And what is it that you're into? It's yeah. really weird. So he didn't get their blessing necessarily. So he, he elopes with her and uh, they are married on January 18th, 1827. Shortly after he gets Emma into his vision seeking. So uh, around this time, he finds another hill and <laughs> taking Emma with him, 
um, he starts to being dictated to again, and, and he claims the angel Moroni returned. And with Emma, he, he dictates the other two plates. Of course, both of them are not in existence. And dictation was completed in July of 1829. So historians would say between 1828 and 1829 were the last two visions. And Moroni then gave him the plates whereby he got his 11 witnesses to look that they're real. And then he gave them back to Moroni and they've since disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so far, Caden. Yeah. Uh, and again, we, ha- we have a little bit more history to cover, but, but you said they were sealed up. So within Mormonism, yeah. that's what it says. Is, is, were you taught some of this is growing up? All, all, almost all of this I was taught, excluding the blotchy marks on Joseph Smith's personal history and criminal right. record. Um, <laughs> right. So excluding some essential facts. Yeah. The general gist of most of this I was taught. The, the big emphasis for. Mormonism and the really the justification for its existence from the mouth of Joseph Smith is the first vision. Right. Uh, Joseph Smith claims and says in Joseph Smith History, which is a, a book, a, a section of the Pearl of Great Price, which is one of their canonical books. He says that he prayed to the Lord. He ra- he I think he says he read James and decided that he was going to ask God for wisdom and pray that God would give it to him. God gives him quote unquote, gives him an answer to his prayer in the form of the first vision. And Joseph's question really that he describes um, is he's wondering which church he should join. Hmm. And so there's there's sort of some acknowledgement of the the religious background of the time mm-hmm. of the of the great awakening there's sort of some of that there that you see in his own recollection of it and he goes out into this grove of trees he sees a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun that descends and then in it he sees the father and the son as two separate personages which is where the mormon doctrine of the the of really jesus comes from is that he is in the likeness of god but not god himself so anti-Trinitarian, that comes from that vision. And a number of other Christian or of, of Mormon doctrines that contradict Christian doctrine doctrines come from the first vision. Um, and so that's really the big one. And if you ask any Mormon today to recite it, I mean, I can almost recite it from memory and it's been, you know, almost a decade for me that I haven't hmm. been, <laughs> that I haven't believed this. And I can still almost recite it from memory. So you taught that from a really young age. Yeah. And that's the justification for the faith is God comes down and tells Joseph, None of these churches are true. Don't join any of them. Tells him that essentially the world's been living in apostasy uh, since the last of the apostles were killed off and that he God has now chosen Joseph Smith to restore the true church to the way it's supposed to be, to the way Jesus left it. And so that's really the justification that the church has for its own existence and account entirely based on the the testimony, testimony of, of one man Smith. Yeah. right exactly yeah, one and, man yeah. with no evidence with no evidence and that's right. a theme for mormonism as well the testimony the importance and value of the testimony and really that kind of superseding logical faculties or biblical solid interpretation that is a theme that carries on even into the personal life everybody wants a testimony like joseph smith's right and so you'll you'll hear a lot of lds people as they like to be called they don't like to be called mormons but you'll hear a lot of lds people share a testimony that's similar. This is how I know it's true. I had this emotional experience and it echoes that first vision. Hmm. So really, in everything that you've said, I knew nothing about the history growing up. I knew nothing about Joseph Smith's CD backgrounds. I knew nothing about the poverty or economic situation of his family. I knew nothing about the 
theological context of the time he was born in. I knew none of that information. All I heard was there was a 14-year-old boy who wanted to know what the truth was. And don't we all relate to that? Mm -hmm. And all I heard was that he prayed. And in response to his prayer, God granted him a vision. Hmm. Fascinating. Luke, you were going to say something. Yeah, two two things. This theme keeps popping up, not just in Mormonism, but this restoration movement that it's we exactly first right. addressed in With, JWs. That's exactly right. And it wasn't just, it wasn't even limited. Like, for instance, this was also Muhammad's claim. That's right. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize, and it's, it's actually codified by the Islamic Council, that when he began Islam, that he conceived that it would be sort of a triumvirate and a blend of Christianity, Catholicism, and Judaism. Mm. These three things together, and that he was fixing all the problems yeah. that had been there. Yeah. In more modern times, and I say this, I have one other point, Edward Fudge, who is the progenitor largely of the doctrine of annihilationism and conditionalism in modern history, same type of thing, that the doctrine of an eternal hell has been not part of the original church. 1,500 years, and in seven months, a guy with no training, no degree, had a law degree, no theological training, gets this behest from a, at, who at the time is an apostate Seventh-day Adventist mm -hmm. who had forsaken by grace through faith salvation a long time before, comes to him, and he figures it out and writes this book called The Fire That Consumes. Mm -hmm. And then it's now accepted as modern evangelical doctrine, mm -hmm. as an acceptable format of that, even though it directly denies Scripture. So you have this restorationist movement that go back into these really old documents, right. yeah. and then they come up with these doctrines that have right. been condemned for I, hundreds of years. I've told this to students. I tell this to everyone. Beware of the one guy all by himself, yeah. goes off somewhere, and hears, quote-unquote, from the Lord, yeah. and comes out and teaches <laughs> something contrary to everything you've been taught. <laughs> Beware of that guy, yeah. because it's it, it, we find it over and over in history. And then one other thing, if I may, there's a historical setting. The Victorian age, this 19th century, is an age of great credulity, mm -hmm. where people are extremely gullible. There's a huge amount of false doctrines that begin to be promulgated during this time, mm -hmm. but not just doctrines, but even things that were happening in the historical realm. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is when Darwin writes. This is when Marx writes. This is an extremely formative time for the psychological and intellectual history right. of many things that are continuing yeah. even now in our culture. Yeah. And, you know, Smith's no exception. A lot that. of people have deemed that century the foes of the faith because so mm. many, so many cults and aberrant theology and, you know, other you know, world events have, have, you know, attacked Christianity. But let me keep going. Back to Joseph Smith and the history. So in April 1830, six members of the, what we now know as Mormons LDS, they organized, they organized themselves, and the Book of Mormon started publication in 1830. And it was at this time, around this time, that Smith began to proclaim himself a prophet, getting followers. Well, he already knew that people in Pennsylvania were going, oh, okay, what is going on here? So picking up on this theme, he leaves Pennsylvania and goes to Ohio. And it was in Ohio that he finally, you know, officially stamps, we are the LDS, we're yeah. the Latter-day Saints. What Caden wasn't taught, um, <laughs> a lot of the Mormons in, in Ohio began to invest in dubious business ventures, mm -hmm. resulting in bank fraud. And Smith was actually charged for bank fraud and 
That caused him and his wife and some of his close followers to flee Ohio and they went to Missouri. So in Missouri, um, he, he stepped up his game. They took officially the Church of Jesus Christ's Latter-day Saints as their official title. And they said, we're going to build a building. Mm. We're, 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 we're establishing it. But by this time, word reached other politicians and religious leaders of these Missourians. And they were saying, we're, we're having none of this. This, this is just weird stuff. So tensions arose between the new Mormon settlers and, you know, the mainline denomination and political leaders. It reached, believe it or not, the governor's desk. So the governor was very weary of, of what was going on. So Governor Lyburn Boggs ordered that Mormons be driven from the state. So Smith was brought before a military court accused of treason, and they even said, we could execute you because he was accused of treason. They upped, you know, his, his accusations. Well, he wasn't, but he spent a little bit of time in, in prison. But it was around this time that this was happening to Joseph Smith, the political intrigue, that Brigham Young began to rise in the leadership of the Mormon. And he was the president of the church's Quorum of Twelve Apostles. And he rose to direct, direct um, prominence and Mm -hmm. probably seeing that Joseph Smith's going through all of this political intrigue, he says, we're out of here. So he takes a lot of of the Mormons, leaves to Illinois, later to Iowa, and then later to, of course, Utah. So Brigham Young kind of takes off from Joseph Smith, the founder of this religion. Then after getting out of prison, Joseph moves to Illinois. And it was there in Illinois that he starts making known the doctrine of plural marriage. Well, this caused both political and religious upheaval. Dissent started to occur both within the ranks of the the people that stayed true to him and the politicians. And then Joseph Smith decides to up it one more time. He says, okay, I'm now the lieutenant general of this area. So I'm, I'm, the, I'm the head honcho, not just religiously. I'm, I'm, I'm the political leader. Well, you, you can see where this is going. <laughs> Non-Mormons, <laughs> the other politicians are going. A are small you, conflict of interest, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're going, are you kidding me? The, you, you just can't show up and say you're the lieutenant yeah. general. And they wrote it in the paper to watch out for Joseph Smith and these new people, that these guys are, these guys are bad news. And yeah. he, here's what's interesting is Joseph Smith gets upset and he says, we need to destroy the newspaper and the press. And this led to his arrest one more time. <laughs> he fled, he hit town, but then realized he left all his, his people and, and such back there. So he, <laughs> he goes back, he surrenders to the authorities. So they then bring him once again to the court on June 23rd, he and his brother Hiram, and they show up at court, and he sentenced what they thought was for inciting a, a riot. Well, once again, they go, no, we can't just do that because he'll get off easy. We need to say it's treason, because with the treason, they could then really keep him in, in prison. So he's, he's convicted of treason. They put him in prison. So then on June 27th, 1844, people were so freaked out by Joseph Smith and and what he was doing. They painted their their faces black or put hoods over them. They attacked the the jail and shot Hiram immediately, 
in the face. So they say Joseph Smith, who was smuggled in a gun, was able to return fire, shot three of the men, but the men prevailed and they killed Joseph Smith in prison. Supposedly his last words were, oh Lord, my God, and of course he died. Later, the five men were were put on trial, but they were all acquitted. Mm -hmm. So he dies in 1844 after, you know, a few bouts in prison and and so on and so forth. So, so Caden, were you taught any of this? So, so... Again, and I just want to keep saying this, excluding the the blotchy marks on the history, there's a lot of interesting time warping that the LDS Church does with the specific division of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. The fact that they were ever divided, both on 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 theological ideas and even just on the practical day to day runnings of a you know a church organization, escaped me completely as a Mormon believer. It was never something. I heard, in my mind, Brigham Young, completely legitimate president president of the church. In my mind, you know, Joseph Smith, completely legitimate founder of the church, restorer of the gospel, right? So to me, the idea that there was ever disagreement between them was it was it was a non you know a non concept. Yeah. I had never yeah. never conceived that that was a problem ever. And specifically, the way that the timing is taught is that Brigham Young was sent out by Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was captured. Like those two events happened almost at the same time. So that when Joseph Smith is taken into prison, it's it's clear that he's recognized Brigham Young as the new leader of the church, foreseeing his eventual martyrdom mm-hmm, uh, in Carthage right. jail. And that's really how it's taught. And, and the sure, unfortunate sure. part is that people did deem it necessary to put hoods on or paint on their faces and go and make a martyr out of him because that's exactly what happened. That's exactly right. And legitimized, and even in the mind of modern day Mormon believers, legitimizes the belief in, in yeah. this man. Why yeah, he, he was a man this? of conviction. He, yeah. he he wouldn't have died yeah. like this if he if he really didn't, didn't see those visions. It. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and, and and all of the all of the forays into criminal activity <laughs> that preceded that are completely blocked. So if you look at it from that perspective, Joseph Smith seems like a stand-up guy. Yeah. Um, forsaking yeah. the idea that he had multiple wives and all these other things and was teaching strange doctrines. Yeah. So here on out, and again, Luke appreciated so much telling our listeners this this program is longer than normal, but it's so, so vital. We we finished with the history portion. Now Caden and Luke are really going to be talking about the theological um, uh, issues that arise from within Mormonism. Luke's going to establish them and then Caden will respond as he can. Um, so you, you will you will hear very little of me, but mostly Caden and Luke going back and forth. One of the first things that I looked at is anytime someone makes the claim of prophecy, you have a significant criteria that has to be met if that's going to be done on the terms of Old Testament prophets, where, as you mentioned before, there's much to be said for the usage of the Levitical trappings, what we would call mm-hmm. an Aaronic priesthood, which they would probably call it an Adamic priesthood. Mm. An Aaronic priesthood where you have all of the different laws and commandments that are given to the priest and a lot of ceremony, a lot of things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, in that vein, with the understanding that was present in the 19th century, Joseph Smith's calling himself a prophet. Yeah. And one of the big things that has to happen for that to be true is that you can't have any false prophecies if you're considered to be a true prophet of God. Yeah. And you yeah. have to be able to perform signs and wonders to verify the fact that you are this right. prophet. Yeah. And what I'm curious about with that 
is this other form of profit, because as I understand it, there are current people, whether they're the full leader of the church or not, that claim to be a prophet of the Mormon church, mm -hmm. typically very highly placed in the echelon, maybe multiples at the same time that are living yeah. at the same time. And they claim that there's no contradictions in any of the prophetic literature, but rather just additional revelations in which if one prophet, quote, contradicts or seems to contradict right, another, yeah. it's not that he's contradicting him. It's that he was given additional revelation yeah. by God, which seems to me to be sort of a safety net against the the assertion of false prophecy. Yeah. So what, what's your, how did, did you see anything like that where it sort of caused you to scratch your head at the beginning? You're like, how's this guy a prophet? But did they teach you what yeah. a prophet was from the Bible? So, so again, many of the words that, you know, both our listeners and also just well-rooted Christian believers associate with true biblical concepts. Like for, for example, the idea of being a prophet, you know, being tied to the Aaronic priesthood and, and even the Levitical law, um, many of many of the concepts that we have in mind that we would the words like prophet that we would use to describe isn't is redefined in a Mormon context. Mm -hmm. So was I taught what a prophet was? Yes, absolutely. But what I was taught about what a prophet is is I was taught the prophet is the selected leader of the church, God ordained leader of the church, given the authority to give God's revelation to be his mouthpiece to his people, which in a certain twisted sense is biblical, right? right. Out of context. Um, so that's what I believed about the prophets of the church. Again, the idea of, hang on a minute, I think you just built a backdoor or a safety <laughs> net into false revelation. That never crossed my mind because, again, I was taught from such a young age and believed so absolutely yeah. in the authority of the prophet that if he said something, it was for a certain people and a certain time. And if in 30 years something changed, then it was meant for these people in this time. And I never mm -hmm. associated the contradiction with the falsehood. I, mm -hmm. never, I never put those two together because I believed so wholeheartedly in the authority of not just the prophets, but of the priesthood in general. And, and that's what a lot of the church is built on. It's built on the authority of the priesthood, both the Aaronic and what, what they think of as the Aaronic and the Melchizedek. And they have way different approaches to what those priesthoods are. And they're very, very loosely tied to Levitical law. Um, and they don't really have a basis in, in true biblical doctrine. But that was the authority I trusted and believed in. And that was the system that I was just taught to obey and to listen to. And because the semantics are so similar mm -hmm. to Christianity... I, they believe it, so they're just a different flavor of what I believe, and and this is what I believe. And you know, if you tell me that a prophet is a mouthpiece of God, you might have the Levitical, the true Levitical knowledge and backing to that word. Yes. I don't, but I agree with you. Prophet's the mouthpiece of God. I just believe that God continues to reveal to His people through prophets. God still uses prophets, and that's what Mormons believe. I, I think that's even one of their articles of faith. Uh, and there's 13 of those. And that's one of the ones that you memorize from childhood. I mean, from from the ages of like six and up, you're learning the articles of faith, reciting them from memory to songs that are meant to help you kind of mm. internalize them. So would, would, would a thinking person look at that statement and go, hang on a minute, I think you just built a, a safety net. It's like, hey, if I ever say, say anything wrong, it's not because I'm wrong. It's not because I'm contradicting myself. It's just because I got a new revelation. Like <laughs> any thinking person who hears that goes, wait a minute. I, th 
I think you're lying to me about something. <laughs> I think you were wrong. But that's that's not what you're conditioned to be as a Mormon. You're not conditioned to be a critical thinker. You're conditioned to be faithful. And see, that that's such an important insight, I think, because there's so many different instances, anecdotes that I've come across, some of the people that I've known who've come out of Mormonism as well, much later into their adult years, talking about how there was this sycophantic devotion the church cannot be wrong the teachings of the church cannot be wrong we find that in other places as well sure. but they they cling to this desperately because so much is predicated on the correctness of that because it, it pervades so many areas of their life it's like you can't you can't just pull one doctrine out like in christianity right. there's a lot of things that we believe that right. you know there's room for difference totally. there's not that no. type of yeah. leeway you do that in one area and the whole thing crumbles yeah. so that's I, I love that insight. The next thing I was looking at is Scripture. Uh, you mentioned earlier the Pearl of Great Price. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Book of Mormon's called, at least at some time, it's called the Second Testament of Jesus Christ. Another Testament. Or yep. another Testament yeah. <laughs> where you know he's made a post-resurrection, post-ascension appearance to people in the North American continent mm -hmm. that are typically construed as being the lost tribes of Israel. Yeah among other things. And in this instance, from a from a Christian perspective, it, of course, we believe the canon was closed and that was known very early on. Yeah. And so I think it's this Victorian era where they're like, what, there's another testament that Jesus wrote? Yeah. And this is often the approach that Mormons will use at the door. They're like, yeah, we accept the first testament of Christ. We accept the Bible exactly right. as it is. Yeah. But we have additional stuff. Voila, here it is. And what's really interesting is that there are many passages, as someone who was raised on the King James Bible myself, uh -huh. <laughs> that are direct yeah. word for word yeah. Yeah. transferences into yeah. that, sometimes passages. Yeah, totally. And then there's this hilarious repetition of, and, and it, it came, came to, to pass. pass. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Yeah. And so that being said, as you yeah. were reading this, I, I guess I have to ask this. Christians are typically pushed to read God's word, right? Yeah. And so this is the foundation of all of our doctrine. As you were growing up in the church, was there a big push to read the Book of Mormon? Did they, did they preach from it? And how did they escape people who were trying to apply critical reading? Were you ever taught to read it critically, exegetically, anything like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you're, you're, you're really pushed, and, and I'm sure we'll have time to touch on their doctrine of salvation specifically, but th th there's a huge emphasis on, on reading. On, on studying. Hmm. Um, if you grow up in the Mormon church as a, a high schooler, you begin to take seminary every morning. Uh, not seminary in the context of what we Christians think seminary being, like a four-year college setting um, specifically devoted towards the, the doctrines of the Bible, how to teach it. But, but the Mormon version of seminary is what you do before you go to high school, basically, every morning. Uh, if you're lucky as a Mormon, you had a seminary building attached to your high school, which some did. Uh, because there were so many attending, some did have that. And so you mm. got to go on one of your free periods for, for school, you would go. But for me as a high schooler, I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning, driving to my church building and taking a seminary class mm. from, you know, five to six and my zero hour. And then I was going to school from six on. And so, and, and those classes are specifically focused on reading and studying and memorizing and internalizing mm. 
both the doctrines of the Bible, you do one a year. So your, your freshman year could be the Book of Mormon. And you spend the whole year, the whole school year, reading the Book of Mormon, studying, memorizing. Your sophomore year could be the Doctrine and Covenants. And so you spend a whole year reading and studying, internalizing, memorizing the Doctrine and Covenants. Then you have New Testament. Then you have Old Testament. So you have four years of lengthy time, study, spent reading the text. Here's the key, though. They say this in one of their articles of faith. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Yes. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. So the key in there is as far as it's translated correctly. And so now the natural question you might ask is, what does that mean to be translated correctly? <laughs> Define your terms, in right? To, in the degree in which it corresponds properly with the way we have projected the meaning of the Book of Mormon. I right, would imagine. yeah. There's a funny story about that. My my mother and father, they went to Bible college many years ago, and Mormons had come to their door, and they'd been studying the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Not the Mormons, I'm sure they were, but my mom and dad had been looking into it. Yeah. And they said, well, what about the prophecies of the Old Testament? If you mm. accept both of them, what's going on there? And they're like, what do you mean? And they said, well, the Bible says that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. You guys put in the Book of Mormon, he was born in Jerusalem. And they said, well, do you know how close they are? Hmm. And so there's this tension there yeah. where even a direct geographical hardwired difference yeah. was not enough to even cause there to be a question. And if they're being, if they're inculcating all of that, yeah. it's like, ah, well, you know, it's, they're almost the same city. And right. so you can tell that yeah. there's been this interpretive mechanism that's been yeah. applied. Yeah. I have a question particularly for you. And then we got to move on to the next point. When you became a believer mm -hmm. in Jesus, a true believer. Mm-hmm. How did that change your experience since you've studied Old Testament, New Jeez. Testament as a Mormon, and then all of a sudden you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, yeah. and you're looking at Scripture, and you're like, was it like, uh, was it hard to root out the Mormonism side of it? Yeah. Still echoes, or was it like, I've never seen it this way before? It was a bit of both, to be honest with you. It was a lot like uh, turning on the lights, mm. it, like seeing properly for the first time. Um, like I remember the first time I, I read KJV my whole life. And if you've read KJV your whole life and then you pick up an NLT, your mind just gets blown. <laughs> right. And I, rem I remember doing that for the first time and thinking it can't be this easy to understand. Cause I, mm. I've been speaking in ye and thine and thou's for, for my whole life. That's what I've been hearing as the word of God. And so hearing it in a different translation absolutely blew my mind. At the same time, there were doctrines that I had a really hard time shaking off. And you'll find this with any cults. Yeah. And as you go on your discussion about cults, you'll see it's really hard to shake off that programming that you've gone through and even practiced. And for me, even was enthusiastic about for 18 years. That's hard to get out. And so my early days as a believer were spent heavily reading, studying, and also looking at extra biblical sources. Yeah. And the whole idea of apologetics was another thing that was like turning on the lights blew my mind that you could study historically and still end up with biblical accuracy because yeah. as a Mormon, if you study historically, it's like you get <laughs> doubts and that's what yeah. I did. And if you look into it, you get doubts. And my experience as a, as a, as a Mormon believer, as a young believer specifically in general was a lot like driving down a road with a ton of potholes in it and you keep hitting bumps and you keep hitting bumps and you keep having doubts. And the solution is, okay, we've got to fill those potholes up with some faith. Like I got to fill that up with faith. Yeah. I just need to have faith. And that gets you a certain distance and that gets you a certain level of commitment. And certainly I experienced that. But then you come to the end and you've got no faith left and you're still hitting 
speed bump and pothole and pothole and pothole and more and more questions are arising, there comes a point where you have to make a decision and you either double down, triple down, you, you just accept that the teaching is true or you start asking really serious questions. And for me, that was where I, that's where the Holy Spirit really began to speak to me. That's really where I began to question what I was taught as a Mormon. But again, if, if, if it's been programmed into you for 18 years, shaking yeah. that off, it takes some time and, and it, there's still things you gotta, man, I'm, I, I'm not saved by, I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by faith. Right. I'm saved by grace. I don't need to work for this. And, and that's something that even Christians struggle with. We struggle yeah. to remember that. So there's definitely things that I have struggled to shake off and things that I had to spend time being discipled in in order to understand. But yeah, when I discovered that the Bible was understandable, that God's word was not just not just that there was a different way to read it, but that there was a specific way to approach it to approach truth mm. that absolutely blew my mind and is really what set me on fire for the for the gospel was that i can know that it's true i don't need to like all i right. do have faith but that's not all i need to rely on yeah. that's what i get with my salvation i i have faith in the lord I, I i have faith and i believe in him and i get saved but then there's so much more that i can read and study and understand and that was that was just exhilarating i remember just being enthralled and reading so that's- much that is awesome. I think one of my greatest comforts about the Bible itself is that it has been subjected to every level of scrutiny to which it is possible yeah. to subject something, and it has withstood them mm-hmm. and done it robustly. There's yeah. not like a, a thin spot where I'm like, yeah. well, I don't know. So that's yeah. that's an ex- amazing experience on that. Now, bear with us, listener. I know we're going a little bit long here, but this is such valuable stuff. We're going to go for a little bit longer, and we're going to cover some some other things. Now, these are doctrines, of course, that we would not have in common with Mormonism. Like mm-hmm. we would agree there's prophets, right? But prophets are not always prophets when we compare the terminology on a detailed level. Yeah. We believe that there's scripture, that God has spoken, right? Mm-hmm. But then that looks very different. And as you pointed out so clearly, there's a difference in not just what's been written, but how it's approached and the level of scrutiny to which it can be subjected. Yeah. So something that... Christians would definitely reject is that God the Father has a body, mm. a flesh and bone. Yeah. And if we know the scriptures, there is a point at which Christ talks about, he said, a spirit does not have flesh and bone as I do, but this is Christ himself speaking post-resurrection. Mm-hmm. That somehow gets superimposed over the person of God the Father from his first vision right. where they're seen together. Yeah. Even though the Bible says clearly, Jesus himself says it, God is a spirit. And yeah. they much must who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So I I'm thinking that they had to have either put a spin on that, or found another way to just say, well, it wasn't taught in this testament; it's yeah. taught in this one. One of the major reasons why we would have a huge problem with Mormonism as a doctrine is their conception of deity right. and how it yeah. both applies to God and how it actually is taught to have applied to man. Yeah. Any comments on that? I'm. S- I would say the the twisting of the the doctrine of both the Trinity and the nature of God comes mostly from the first vision as recorded by Joseph Smith. So extra biblical, supported by false interpretations of the biblical text. Hmm. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is already a hard one and a challenging one for most Christians to be able to describe Hmm. and defend and provide scriptural backing for. That's already a, a, a complex one for the average believer. 
This is one that tends to get that tends to get people. The source is extra biblical, but the defense comes from false interpretations. So one of those being God created man in his image, in his likeness. If you don't have if you don't examine and, and again, this is they don't they don't examine the Bible this way. If you don't examine the Bible in its language of origination, you miss out on a lot of information. I mean, imagine reading through the New Testament without a Greek interlinear. You yeah. are missing so much that's there. And so that's a lot of a lot of the the interpretive flaws that Mormon ha- Mormonism has in its theology come from the lack of those sources. And so they they take that idea of of man being created in God's image and go, well, what was the image of God? Well, it's like a it's like an expression of who God is. So it must be that God has a body of flesh and blood. Right. And then that ties into now again extra biblical. So this is kind of how you'll see the theme of their uh their for lack of a better word, apologetics. This is how you'll see it go is extra biblical source, biblical misinterpretation as supporting evidence. Then we go back to an extra biblical source. So they'll cite first vision where now, I want you to repeat that for our listeners one more time, <laughs> because this is common yeah. in almost every single cult. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say the, the their their basic apologetic works this way. Extra biblical source, biblical misinterpretation for support. And then we go back to extra biblical support or a, extra biblical source. And if you aren't knowledgeable, A, on the extra biblical source, the historical context, and if you're not knowledgeable on the literary context, historical context, linguistic context of the Bible verses that they're quoting, they can get you. Yeah. And certainly as a Mormon, I would go after Christians on this doctrine of the Trinity where like, for example, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, I would go after Christians. What do you mean he's praying to God and he is God? That doesn't make any sense, Christian. What are you talking about? And I took a lot of issue with that. And many Christians would then get really flustered and struggle to defend the Trinity because it's a it's a tricky doctrine to to defend for most believers. Right. Here's your plug to take Calvary college courses and learn how to defend the Trinity. But many Christians I spoke to couldn't. And so that gave me a boost. And it's because I was using cyclical logic mm-hmm. and poorly interpreted sources to get there. So I want to interject on this because what you've just described as a Mormon apologist yourself prior to coming to the faith <laughs> yeah. and the techniques that you used, these are things of which Christians need to be aware. Because the Bible yeah. says we don't have to handle the Word of God with craftiness. It says we right. are able to do this in an open, transparent manner. So if that's the case, then I want to ask sort of a two-edged question. Yeah. One— I'm assuming that in your in your studies and in your evangelism for this or apostleship for this religion, that you came across people who maybe stumped you or weren't necessarily able to be taken in by you, <laughs> even if they couldn't really stump you. Yeah. Tell me about one of those memorable experiences, because I think yeah. I want this to be instructive to the believer. Yeah, say, totally. These types of things are going to help you keep this type of doctrine at arm's length. Yeah. Um, I really think that you have to have, as a Christian, if you want to have dialogue, if you want to have conversation with somebody who is LDS, you either, you have to have A, an incredible depth of knowledge and wealth of knowledge of their own semantics. You have to really understand the Mormons. You have to really understand Mm -hmm. what they mean when they say a certain word, what they mean when they use another word, what they mean when they talk about you know, the doctrine and covenants and what's in it. And you, you have to understand and 
So you have to understand what they say first really well. You have to understand their semantics. You then have to understand the verses that they use incredibly well, incredibly well. You have to you have to have an understanding that goes deeper than reading it for the first time and trying to immediately <laughs> apply it. And so I'd say that's the second thing that you need to be able to do in order to have any kind of dialogue with them. Now, you can go about that one of two ways. You can sit down with a Mormon and say, okay, we're going to have a philosophical discussion and you're going to define every single term that you're going to use. And as an evangelical approach, as an evangelistic approach, I'm going to say that's not the way to go about it. Did I encounter people that stumped me? Absolutely. Uh, the, the one, I mean, I'm a Christian now, so clearly I encountered people that stumped me. But the, the primary one was an individual, the guy who led me to Christ, who had a wealth of knowledge on the topic of Mormonism. He himself had considered it in his younger days, had considered converting to Mormonism, had experiences, run-ins, lengthy conversations with Mormons, and a philosophical and logical backing that was really sufficient that he got from apologetics and from a love of philosophy. And he had a wealth and a depth of knowledge on the biblical text. He had all three of those. So the guy that I got you know, was studying for his master's at Biola in apologetics. And I had no idea that I was biting off more than I could chew <laughs> and arguing with him. But I, I went out to, and I, I, you know, I started dating his daughter and I was like, I'm going to convert her. I'm going to convert him. And her and I, we would have debates. You know, she was my girlfriend at the time. And we would have debates on theology. And I would stump her on the Trinity. I would use that exact same argument. And I would go find every single verse in the Bible where Jesus refers to God. And I'd be like, why, who's he talking? Why doesn't he just tell everybody? I am. And he does in many other verses and places, <laughs> but I, I hadn't read those. And so, you know, my conversation, I would stump her occasionally. What I didn't know is she's going back to dad and filling dad in <laughs> on all of the stuff that was going on and the arguments. So when it came time for he and I to discuss, yes, he had, you know, he knew where I was coming from. Yes, he knew his philosophy and his logic really well, but he also knew his Bible really well. And, and the most important part was he, he genuinely loved people. Mm -hmm. And even though I was this, upstart, aggressive, very prideful uh, Mormon evangelist. He was so patient and kind and loving with yeah. me. And, you know, the conversation spanned many months where I thought I was winning the debate yeah. <laughs> and I thought I was in it. I would say if there's one area to start with in conversation, it's the topic of salvation. That is really where uh, Mormonism, for lack of a better word, falls completely flat, mm. is the doctrine of salvation. Their doctrine of salvation is based entirely on works. And if you ask a Mormon, do you know if you're going to heaven? The answer is, I don't know. The yeah. honest answer from them is, I don't know. And even after all of the things that they do, whether it's things in the temple or whether it's things you know, on, in, in church on a Sunday or even things outside that that they do for their faith, even after they do all of those things, they're still so mm. unsure of their own personal salvation. Let me just interject here, Luke, because it, it, it personalizes it. And I know the person that Caden's referring to. I know the people he's referring to. Mm. And how he described him fits him very, very well. And on the flip side, this individual that led Caden to Christ was coming to me, not getting information. Believe me, he he knows his stuff, as Caden pointed out. But he was just rejoicing. He was rejoicing. He was going, Brian, this kid, Caden, I, 
I think he's going to become a Christian. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah. know how many Mormons, you know, right. usually Mormons just leave religion altogether, right, you yeah. know, so to say. And he goes, no, I mean, he goes, he's sharp. He asks great questions. And he truly wants to seek God. And I, and, 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 and this individual said, I, I think God's going to honor this. And I go, Grant, oh, well, okay, I just blew it. That's okay. Yeah, I, his name's Grant. I said, Grant, okay, that's great. And then I literally remember the day when I saw Grant and he said, committed his life to the Lord. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And then he said, not only that, he's going to get baptized. Yeah. And I went out <laughs> with my own eyes to watch Caden get baptized. And I'm going, oh my goodness. So, so though Caden is clear and he articulated it just immensely well, that it is difficult. You really need to know yeah. s- certain things. The Lord could work because He worked in Caden. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I would I would say too. For thanks for sharing, Brian, because a lot of that I I never got to know the background. Hearing it now is really incredible. But to reach to reach a Mormon, they fundamentally want what we all want, which mm-hmm. is proximity with God. Right. We wanna we wanna be forgiven. We wanna be saved. That's why that doctrine of salvation is such a hard one for them because they don't know that they're saved. And and I'll tell you this, the Mormon view of Christians is that you guys are just a bunch of prideful, overconfident, lazy, like know-it-alls. Like yeah. you guys, you think you're saved. And, you know, as a, as a high schooler, I was like, I've seen Christians. I don't want what they want. Like I see them at parties. I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm set apart. I'm different. Yeah. And I prided myself on on what I thought was my obedience, but I fundamentally desired and lacked affirmation in my own salvation. Yeah. And I was terrified, yeah. was terrified of the Lord. And I didn't know I could be at peace with him. Mm. And when I, mm. when, when, Beautiful. when Grant introduced me to the concept of being at peace with the Lord and being saved, I, I could not forget. I mean, he, he sat me down and he said, you know, he asked me, do you know if you're saved or not? And I said, no. Like, no, what do you mean? Like, how could I know that? Do you know if you're saved? And he got emotional. And I was like, huh? Like, what do you, do you know? You think you're saved? And he says, yes, I think I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And I remember just thinking, like, well, good for you. Like, yeah. You know, what, like, prideful yeah, jerk. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, good for you, you prideful jerk. And uh, that's where that conversation ended. But I, I, that thought stuck with me. What if I knew I was saved? It's interesting that the Mormons have a very interesting connection to Roman ca- Catholics who yeah. also don't know if they're saved. Right, you yeah. know, there, there's that interesting, like, we don't know. We're, we're hoping to make it to purgatory to get saved, but right. ultimately only God knows. Whereas biblical Christianity, you know, teaches we're not saved by works. We're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by, you know, his grace through our faith in yeah. that. So anyway. And there's there's a verse in the Book of Mormon that says we shall be saved after and what is it after we doing all that we can I think is how the Book of Mormon yeah. translates it and so after well, all that we can do yeah after all that we can do um, so this this concept is folks if if you're listening to this you need to hang on every word because Caden's expressing here this internal desire that's masked by all of the different things mm-hmm. that are brought yeah. about mm-hmm. as accoutrements, that's the right. language, the ecumenical terms, mm-hmm. all of these things. And underneath that, there's a heart that's still missing God. Right. And that's something that cannot be masked. And it's still there. Yeah. And so I, I want to bridge in 
There's a couple of other things that uh, Brian's going to contribute here, but I want to ask this last question because I don't want to try your patience with how much longer we're going here. I want to ask this question, Kate, think about it just for a minute, and then Brian, if you're going to jump in. But out of all we've talked about, we talked about what that looks like from the Mormon side. As a Christian now, and having been a Mormon, what's your advice outside of the details that we've just said, the simplest way mm-hmm. to have that conversation? So a lot of people are never going to get to an apologetic uh, prowess. They're not going to do that. So out of the basics, what do you think would hit home the most to witness to a Mormon that comes to your door that you run across on the street? And then, Brian, if you're going to go, and then, Caden, think about that, and then jump in. No, I was just going to confirm and affirm what you guys said, that deep down, all people, they, they want to have that relationship yeah. with the Lord. And Mormons are no different. And I think if you you establish that connection of, you know, this is how you have peace with God. This is yeah. how you have peace with yourself. Because once you have peace with God, then that peace turns to you. So I was just going to affirm what you guys were saying. But, Caden, go ahead. Yeah, and I, I want to say this too to the the those of you who are trying to reach maybe LDS people that you know for, that you're familiar with. This is my this is my daily prayer to the to the Lord that He would help me, that He would strengthen me. My family are still Mormon, and I my brother's on a mission in Argentina. So this is something that I am in the process, and this is something that that is my really my struggle every single day, uh, and this is something that I'm personally living out and trying to work out mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of my family. If I could come to the Lord and I felt like the Saul of Christians, I was persecuting the Christians. If I could come to the Lord, and I remember hearing this from many people who knew me when I was a Mormon. If you can come to the Lord, anybody can. <laughs> anybody can. And so so if, if there's somebody in your life that you've been praying for that you know is Mormon. If I can come to the Lord, they can too. And that's my prayer for my family. But I do want to say, in terms of the essentials, not only are Mormons unsure of their own salvation, they're unsure really of how to get there. Mm -hmm. They're really unsure of how to get there because what they struggle with is what we all struggle with, which is the flesh. What they struggle with is what we all struggle with, which is putting off the flesh. Mm -hmm. And so you can really relate to Mormons on these two experiences, both their desire for God, their need for God in their life, and their own recognition that they're sinners. They do not believe that they have a sin nature. They don't believe in sin nature. That's a doctrine that they denounce. They believe that humans are born blank. Neutral. Shaped by their environment. And I I encountered that philosophical concept, the concept of tabula rasa. And that was how I interacted with it in a philosophical setting. And I began to agree more and more with the idea that humans were born evil, broken, awful. I, I noticed my own personal tendencies to the negative. Mm-hmm. And any honest person that you've built the rapport with and you have that discussion with is going to tell you, you know, I kind of mess up a lot. Mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. the things that I know I shouldn't, especially especially those who are younger, right? As you get older, and I've noticed this with with Mormons that I've interacted with, there's a certain level of pride and unassailableness that they possess. But especially for the younger ones, they they desire to follow the Lord. They desire proximity with them. They don't know that they're saved. They don't know how to get there. And they constantly run up against their own internal enemy, the sin nature they have, but they don't know it's there. Mm-hmm. So imagine wrestling against that enemy your entire life without knowing that it's there. Mm-hmm. And for me, I experienced it as I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only bad Mormon. 
and I was lying. I was concealing things that I was messing up on. I was trying to put an outward image of I'm doing the things I need to be doing. I'm going to go on a mission. I'm going to go to the temple. And I, I would be in interviews. You have to have a recommend to go to the temple. And I would be in interviews for a recommend with my bishop. They're just a spiritual leader. And you would ask me, do you lie to your fellow men? Are you honest in your dealings with your fellow men? And I'd be like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is like, like, like okay, no, you're lying. You're lying, right? And so I, w- I was struggling even to that point because mm. I didn't want anybody to know. And that's, that's the experience of so many Mormons. They're wrestling against their sin nature. They don't know that they have it. They don't believe in that doctrine. But it's there. But it's there all the right. same. And so they run up against that consistently. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, you want to be saved. You want to be close with God, but you can't. Mm-hmm. Something stops you. And because you were born and raised Mormon, the only concept that you have for why you can't is because you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. You're not yeah. trying hard enough. Yeah. This, I think, is a construct of the priesthood that they chose as their base model. In that model, there is no personal redemption. There's mm-hmm. only covers for sin, mm-hmm. and it's not something that happens until Christ comes. So I love the contribution mm-hmm. there. I know we've covered a lot of ground, folks, but this has been excellent. We could sit here oh, all day yeah, and talk we really with Caden. But you and, know what's beautiful, Luke, again, yeah, is just having someone who has walked yeah. the walk. It, it's easy, again, as we said at the beginning, it's easy for non-Mormons or non-Jehovah Witness or any and just talk and, you know, get some. But to have someone who who has walked it is profound. And I know we went way over than what we normally do. But my prayer is that people would use this podcast and send it to to Mormon, Mormon, um, you know, friends, family members and say, listen to this kid. Yeah kid i've known caden since he was a kid that's okay brian young man he's married now so (laughs) listen to this young man because his testimony is profound couldn't agree more and caden thanks again for joining us perhaps we'll have to do another session where we dig into some other things with you but um that being said i appreciate each and every one of you who's tuned in and has listened to this entire thing. If you need to break it up into a couple of segments, don't beat yourself up about it. It's going to be just as good as where you left off. But if you have additional questions, and again, in this semester, we're looking at cults and solutions, don't hesitate to send us an email at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. And if it's on this topic or some of the other ones that we're coming up on, I promise you it's going to be worth your time to listen. So that being said, God bless you. And until next time, thank you.